During our uh, transition time that we had just a few minutes ago, I had a question up on the screen for you to reflect on. And that question was, when was a time that you felt desperate? When was a time that you felt desperate? I have to wonder if perhaps this was a bit of an uncomfortable question uh, for those who chose to reflect on this question. Desperation doesn't have the best rap in our society today. Oftentimes, when we hear the word desperate or desperation, we associate certain words with it. If someone's desperate, it often means that they're weak. They're not strong enough to take care of themselves. Or it means that their life is out of control. They can't dictate uh, getting what they need or what they want, and so they have to rely on others. We have some sayings that we use. We say that desperate times call for desperate measures. We might say that desperate people do desperate things. And I want to focus on desperation a little bit this morning because I think that's important for us to understand as Christians. And one of the best ways that I understand things is through stories. So if you'll allow me, I just want to share two short stories about desperation. The first story is this. After years of of suffering and struggling, your favorite football team has finally put together a contender, and things are looking good for them. Until the first round of the playoffs, and with five seconds left in the game, they're down by five points with the ball on their own 40-yard line, and things are not looking good. There's only one play left in the book, and that is to call a Hail Mary play. And so the coach radios it in, the quarterback gets his players around him and gives them the play. They hike the ball, and the quarterback tries to buy as much time as possible while the receivers run down the field. And when there's no time left, he reaches back and throws the ball as far as he can, hoping desperately that when the ball lands, it will be in the hands of one of his receivers in the end zone. Desperate times call for desperate measures. How about a more serious story? A woman in her late 50s is in the airport about ready to board a flight for Mexico. Just months before, if you would have asked her if she was going to go to Mexico, she would have said, that sounds like a nice vacation destination. It's warm, it's sunny, there's beaches, I can get away from the winter. But just two months before, she was at the doctor, and the doctor told her that her nagging cough was actually due to stage four cancer. It was incurable, and there's nothing else that could be done for her. In desperation, she went onto the internet and Googled anything, looked for anything that could help her, and she found a clinic in Mexico that said, we have some experimental treatments. It's worked for other people. Why don't you come down and give it a try? And so as she boarded the plane, she said, hopefully this will help me. Desperate times call for desperate measures. A third story of desperation. It's the 9th century B.C. in the land of Syria, There's a mighty man who goes by the name of Naaman. From what we read in Scripture, Naaman is a warrior. He's the commander of a mighty military army, and he is held in high esteem by the king. But Naaman also has an illness. The Bible tells us that he has a skin condition, which most likely would have been leprosy, a slow but sure death sentence for people who had it. Even though he was mighty and powerful, his life was limited, and the end was going to be painful. That is, until one day when a servant girl said, you have leprosy, 
I know a man back home in Israel where I come from, a prophet named Elisha, who would be able to cure you. You should go see if he'll help you. So Naaman said, what do I do? I have nothing left to lose. I'm going to die. So I might as well see if this guy can help me. And so he goes and he asks the king, he says, is it okay if I take a little bit of a journey and I go to Israel? And the king gives him his blessing and sends him off and he makes the journey to Israel. And after asking around for a bit, he finds this prophet named Elisha. And he says, I hear that you can heal me. Would you do that for me? And Elisha says, go dip yourself in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. Naaman takes offense to this. Even though he's come all this way, he thought that the man would just magically heal him. Instead, he tells him to bathe himself in a dirty river. He decides to go home. But luckily for Naaman, sometimes we have friends and people around us who help us make the right decisions even when we don't want to. And his servant says, listen, you have nothing to lose. If you go home, you're going to die. If you stay here, you might die, but you also might be well, so you might as well give it a try. And so Naaman goes and he bathes himself in the Jordan River seven times. And the Bible tells us that on the seventh time, as he comes out of the river, he's healed. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The story of Naaman is not the most popular story in the Bible. I don't know that we come to church on Sundays often and hear a sermon on it, but it's not the most obscure either. I have distinct memories in my mind of Sunday school lessons when I was in kindergarten about this story. And so I'm guessing a lot of us have at least heard this story before. But there's a few details in here that I want to make sure we understand because they really help us understand what Naaman is going through. And the first thing is simply the question, who is this guy named Naaman? That's an interesting name. His name is Naaman. It's like two words repeated. But Naaman is a powerful man. He is a general in the army of Syria. And what we know from the Bible is that Syria and Israel were not necessarily friends. We don't know for sure if Naaman went to war against Israel, but there's record in the Old Testament of Syria and Israel being at odds with one another. We also know that he's not necessarily a believer in the God of Israel. At the beginning of the story, he's offering sacrifices and believing in the pagan God of Syria. And at the end of the story, he believes in God, but he hasn't fully given himself over to God. He's an outsider. He's an enemy. He's not a person of Israel. The second thing I want us to understand is where Syria and Israel are. So I have a map that I'm going to put up here. And so Syria is the big thing in the middle, and Israel is down here to the left. And the thing about the, the distance from Syria to Israel is this isn't a globe-trotting expedition. Naaman's not going on a three-year journey to find healing, but he's not going next door either. According to Google Maps, the journey would have been about 150 miles through mountains and deserts, which would take 10 to 14 days on foot. And so he makes a bit of a trek. There's, there's some buy-in looking for this prophet, Elisha. He travels a ways. The third thing in the story is this disease called leprosy. And I have to admit, I think this is the third time that I've preached about leprosy since I've been here at Fort Gary. And I promise you, I don't have a thing for leprosy. I don't choose this. It just chooses me. Um, and so because many of you have probably heard an explanation of leprosy before, I don't need to bore you with the details, and I'm not going to put a picture up there, because uh, I googled that, and it was disgusting. 
But leprosy was a disease that was very prevalent in the Bible and in some parts of the world still exists today. And what leprosy is, is it's fatal. There's no cure for it. It's painful. You slowly die. And it uh, distances you from other people. It's highly communicable. And so in Bible times, if you would get leprosy, they would send you to live elsewhere so you wouldn't get other people sick. We could perhaps think of leprosy as being something like ALS today, where when someone gets it, there's no cure, and it's just a slow but sure decline until you eventually die. It impacts your nervous system, and it impacts your skin. It's not a disease that you want to get. The fourth and final detail is the Jordan River. So I'll have Logan put up a picture here. Oftentimes we get an idea of what the Jordan River is like in the Bible. It appears in a lot of stories, and perhaps... um, it has, a, it has a bit of a sacred meaning to the people of Israel, but it's not that impressive, and it's not the place I would go bathing in. Two weekends ago, the college and career ministry team went to a cabin up by Lake Winnipeg uh, for our annual planning retreat, and it was, it was a fantastic time of, of dreaming and preparing and hoping for the year, but by Saturday afternoon, we were pretty tired and decided to take a break. And so being the old man of the group, I stayed back at the cabin and I took a nap because I needed that. But the rest of the ministry team went to the lake to go for a swim. When they came back, I said, how was the water? Was it good? And the two words that they used to describe the water were green and thick. Not ideal swimming situations. As you can see from the picture here, the Jordan River isn't green and it's not super thick, but it's not clean either. The Jordan River is often uh, called a, a muddy ditch. Some parts of it are wider than others, some parts are deeper, but it's not that impressive and it's not that clean. Naaman isn't being told to bathe in a mineral spring. He's hopping in the ditch. And so I bring up all these details to help us realize that Naaman is a desperate man, desperately seeking a solution for his problems. He travels a distance to an unfriendly land, seeking an unconventional cure for an uncurable disease, and God heals him. I think for us that desperation is a good thing in our spiritual lives. And when we look at the story of Naaman, Naaman shows us what desperation looks like. The first thing that Naaman shows us is that desperate people take risks. As I look through Naaman's story, I see a lot of risks involved in this journey. Uh, For starters, he's going to a hostile land. He has no idea how people are going to receive him. Will people attack him? Will there be verbal abuse? What are people going to think about him? Because he's well known as being the the general of a rival army. There's the possibility of rejection. What happens if he goes all this way to Elisha and Elisha says, I'm not healing you. I can't heal you. What if he follows what Elisha says and God doesn't heal him and he's rejected by God? What if something worse happens? What if the cure is worse than the disease. You saw a picture of the Jordan River there. I don't know what's swimming in there, but what if the cure is worse than the disease? There's a lot of risk involved. But the truth of the matter is that when we have nothing left to lose, we are willing to try just about anything. The author Ruth Halley Barton says, as strange as it may sound, Desperation is a really good thing in the spiritual life. Desperation causes us to be open to radical solutions, willing to take all manner of risk in order to find what we are looking for. Desperate ones seek with an all-consuming intensity 
for they know that their life depends on it. Like the cancer patient who travels to a foreign country in the quest for cures that can't be found in familiar territory, spiritual seekers embark on a quest for that which cannot be found within the borders of life as we know it. We embark on a search for healing that has not been found in all the other cures we have beyond the human constructs that cannot fully contain the divine. Desperate people take risks. Naaman also shows us that desperate people are needy people. As I looked through the story of Naaman, I realized that even though he was this powerful, well-known military general, he relied on a number of people throughout the story. For starters, he relied on the slave girl to tell him where he could find healing. He relied on the king of his country to bless him and send him on the journey. He relied on the king of Israel to direct him where he should go. He relied on Elisha to tell him how God could heal him. He relied on his servant to keep him in check and make sure that he pursued this to the end. And he relied on God to heal him. I think today we oftentimes pride ourselves in being self-sufficient, self-made people. In the states where I come from, we have this cultural mythology that we call the American dream. And the American dream is this idea that if you work hard enough, if you apply yourself hard enough, you can have anything that you want. Any job, any house, any toy, it can be yours if you just work hard enough. Unless we Canadians look down at Americans and say, why would you believe that? I've been around Canadian Mennonites long enough to know that we have the same beliefs too. Every Canadian Mennonite family has an origin story about that ancestor who came over from Russia or from the Ukraine and they got off the train or the boat with nothing but the shirt on their back. And they worked their tail off and they worked hard and they worked day and night and eventually they got enough money to buy a farm, to buy a business, to invest their money somewhere. And they did well. And they made enough money that their family would never want and that their grandchildren could pursue their dreams. And it was all because they worked hard enough. But the truth of the matter is we're not meant to be self-sufficient people. We're meant to be needy people who need one another. People who need things from each other. Because the truth of the matter is that when we need other people, we realize that we need God. And when we need God... God can use us. Desperate people are needy people. The third and final thing that Naaman shows us is that desperate people reveal God's work in them. There's this precious passage of Scripture in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And it tells us, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, we have this treasure, the power of God, in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We have this treasure in clay jars. About a month ago, I had uh, the, the privilege and the pleasure of preaching at another church in the conference. The pastor was going on vacation, and he asked me to fill in. And I said, yeah, I would love to do that. And you know what? I preached a bad sermon. It was not good. Uh, for starters, um, we had family stuff going on that week. My brother-in-law got married the day before, and so my mind was occupied, and 
The night before I preached, I didn't sleep well, so I was tired and lethargic and sluggish. Um, the sermon that I preached was recycled from a sermon I preached last year here at Fort Gary, and I, I skimmed over it a couple times to make sure that I wasn't addressing uh, Fort Gary instead of this other church. Um, the morning of when I preached, I felt like I was boring. I went long. Uh, people weren't connecting with me. And by the end of the sermon, I just wanted to get out of there. And so I, I prayed, and I went to call the worship leader up. And before the worship leader could get up to the front, an older man from the church stood up. And he said, I want to share something. And he said, you said this, this line in your sermon. It was a throwaway line. And he said, that really challenged me. And I need to think about that. And before he could sit down, another older man stood up and he started crying and he said, this is my story and where I've come from and this is how God met me. And before he could sit down, his wife stood up and said, this was the message our church needed to hear. And a fourth man stood up and shared something else that had touched him. And the point of the matter wasn't that people were touched because I preached a good sermon. I preached a bad sermon. But people were touched because God used something that was ordinary, bad, and broken. God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in desperation. In the story of Naaman, it is not the river Jordan that heals Naaman. In my story, it wasn't the sermon that changed people's lives. It's God's power and God's transforming work that transforms lives. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The thing about a jar of clay is that it's normal. It's ordinary. Might I even say it's boring. If you plant a flower in here, nobody walks by and says, wow, that's a really beautiful jar. They say, look at that flower. The jar is only special because of what it carries inside. But the other thing about a clay jar is that it's also fragile. If you slip or you drop, it'll break into a hundred pieces. We're like clay jars, too. No matter how much we think that we control our own destinies, control our own fates, we're also fragile. All of us are just one phone call from the doctor, one summons into our boss's office, away from being broken into a hundred pieces like a clay jar. But the thing about a clay jar when it breaks is that whatever is inside of it comes out. And so when we're broken into a hundred pieces and God starts to put us back together, God is highlighted. When we're shattered, what is inside of us is revealed. Our brokenness reveals God's grace at work in our lives. Our need reveals God's providence at work in our lives. Our desperation reveals God's faithfulness at work in our lives. Desperate people reveal God's work in them. I want to leave us as a church with two challenges. I, I want us as a church to really consider, are we desperate for God? Are we leaning on our own abilities or do we recognize our need for God? And I don't want to just give us a big abstract thing to think about this week and, and ponder. I want to offer just two, two brief ideas for ways that we can be more desperate people. And the first thing is this. I want to challenge us as a congregation to be more intentional about practicing Sabbath. 
We have this command in the Old Testament where God tells the Israelites, every seven days, do nothing. Don't work. Don't walk. Do nothing. And the thing about the Sabbath is, it isn't imposed on us as a rule to make sure that we stay in line. The Sabbath is a gift to help us recharge, but also realize that we're not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And in a city like Winnipeg, where we have so many opportunities and there's so many things that we can be involved in and our jobs will take more of our time and our kids' activities will take more of our time and our university classes and clubs will take more of our time, we're often tempted to think that we are the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. And so I want to challenge us. Be intentional about taking time to rest. Take time to do nothing but enjoy the good things that God has given us and to worship and to pray, and to read scripture, to connect with God. And if you don't have time to do that one day a week, find an evening a week. But find time to do nothing so that we realize that this is about God and not about us. The second thing I want to challenge us to do is to intentionally put ourselves into positions where we need other people. Being needy isn't really popular. It's not really a great thing in our world today. We don't like it when people are needy on us. But the thing about it, which I realized about a month ago, is that when we need other people, we can more easily realize that we need God. We worship and talk about God, but we can't physically see God. But when we need other people who we can physically see, we realize that we need God. And so I want to challenge us, the next time that we want to go buy a new tool or a new toy, What would it look like if we borrowed that from someone and put ourselves in a vulnerable position where we need and we're asking from other people instead of just buying things for ourselves? Hopefully this summer, as we've looked at the series of God Among the Nations, we felt inspired and challenged by this cast of characters. People like Abraham, Job, Rahab, and Ruth. People who were all desperate and willing to follow what God had for them. Desperate people do desperate things. And I think that God is looking for a few desperate people in his kingdom. Let's pray. God, as a church this morning, we just confess that we need you. That apart from you, we are nothing. That in you, we, we move and we breathe and we find our living And so I just ask that as a church, we will become more aware of our need for you and that we will be desperate for your presence, desperate for your grace, desperate for your power at work in our lives, not so that we can be highlighted, but so that you can be revealed through our imperfections and through our brokenness. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.